0: The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and on today's episode, we have a very talented musician, Mr. Craig Payton. Craig, welcome
1: to the show. Thanks, Rick. It's great to be here. It's I've an been honor, to, forward to, honor to
0: have you on the Rick Z Show. I've wanted to get you on for quite a while now. To be honest with you, I was a little nervous to put this show together because your career has been so uh, long and so various. I, I, I wanted to hit all the points. I didn't know how to get it all in. Uh, I mean, you are a man with your hand in a ton of cookie jars. For example, you're a producer, you're an arranger, you're a composer, you're a singer, a multi-instrumentalist, you're a filmmaker, an author or where do you have time to do all this stuff?
1: Well, it's not all at once. It's linear. It took me years and years, but I've finally come to grips with realizing I'm a jack of all trades. Might be a master and none. I'm okay with it. I'm at peace with the fact that I wear a pile of hats because I don't have a good attention span. So I don't, just do one thing all the time.
0: Well, that's one long linear line that you have. And I'll say this, as an instrumentalist, I know that you're a great keyboard player because I did a gig with you one time and I was impressed right away. But you're also a good drummer and somebody who plays lots of instruments, they tend to have a single instrument that is their main instrument, their first instrument, the one they focus on. Is it fair to say that for you it's the vibraphone?
1: It is professionally, but I was playing I was performing live on drums from the age of 11 and And I took that till about 17, and when I decided to become a professional musician and go to music school, go to Berkeley, and um, I wanted to learn instrumental. I wanted to be able to write songs with notes, and I found as a drummer when I would tell my... I had a band all through high school called Shuttle back in Connecticut, and we played around a lot, but it was frustrating teaching people stuff on the drums. So the vibes were a very logical extension of being a drummer, and actually when I went to Berklee Music School, I just just had bought the instrument about a year earlier, so I was actually learning it in college.
0: When I think of the vibraphone, I think of jazz. I think of those great vibes players like Milt Jackson and uh, Red Norvo and Lionel Hampton, but the layman musician, uh, even people that listen to jazz don't really know what the vibraphone is. It doesn't steal the headlines like the trumpet or the saxophone. Could you explain to our listeners exactly what the vibraphone is?
1: Yep, it's a three-octave keyboard that you use mallets to to hit. A lot of people call it a xylophone, but that's made out of wood. The vibes are made out of aluminum. Most of us, we play four-mallet techniques, meaning two mallets in each hand so we can play four-note chords. And you're right, Milt Jackson, Lionel Hampton came through. The guy I studied with Gary Burton is a a legend in jazz. Him and Chick Corea and a lot of other people have, have worked. He did uh, Constant Craving with a um, very famous country woman whose name I can't think of this moment. But anyway, Gary's been all over the place. And I wanted to play Katie Lang. Katie Lang. Thank Katie you. Lang. Rick. Thank you, Rick Z. It finally, it finally hit me. You're going to be doing a lot of that today. That's okay. That's but my job. I grew up listening to Jimi Hendrix. And worshipping them would probably be fair to say, even though I had a lot of other influences, Zappa and all the rest, uh, you know, Beck and the whole gang from England. But I wanted to play the vibraphone like Hendrix would approach it, meaning electric. So that put me on a separate path right from the beginning and got me into funny gigs.
0: Just so our listeners can hear a sample of vibraphone music, can we listen to something that you've played to give us an indication of the sound?
1: Sure. We can, um, we can play a track called Good Morning, which I wrote um, on my Songs from Home album uh, a while back, but it's pretty much featuring vibraphone melody. Okay, let's check it out.
0: That's Good Morning from Craig Payton. Very nice, Craig. I love the sound of those vibes. Really great. When was that recorded? What year?
1: I've done two versions of that one. It was originally, I believe it was 92, 93. There was a radio station in New York called CD 101.9. Oh, yeah, yeah. played, uh, uh, my friend called it Happy Jazz. That's right. Well, before Smooth Jazz got a bad name, it was kind of, you know, instrumental jazz, but definitely with a, with a pocket, and the one of the programmers, DJs, uh, was called Ray White. Great, great guy. Good. I'm still friends with him to this very day. We talk on Facebook and all that stuff, but um, Ray liked my work with Latitude. Anyway, we got good, good play, and by getting heavy airplay in New York, that kind of leaked into the other markets, and it ended up being an okay tune for me.
0: Well, it sounds great. Also, you were in a band your own personal band, you, you ran the show, the Craig Payton Group. You had an album out in the early 80s, did very well, but then 34 years went by and you released your second album, I believe it was 2016. What is going on there? Did somebody take
1: a wrong turn at practice and get lost or what What happened? That's a great question, Rick C. You've done your homework. It, I'm gonna try to keep the answer down below 30 or 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> I came out into New York. I fought my way through the club system into New York to be a jazz fusion musician. Dan Hartman, God rest his soul, one of the great influences of my life. He was the bass player for the Egger Winter Group and wrote legendary songs like I Can Dream About You or Free Ride and just Frankenstein. Dan's a genius. Produced anybody. Tina Turner and a a long list of of hits to his name. I hated Instant Replay, by the way. That was one of his first big hits. But all the rest of the stuff I like. He put me on a record called Relight My Fire, and I played my best fusion jazz vibes on that record. A solo. I played my heart out. It went number one global, but with a terrible realization. The fact it was a hit was a dream come true. I had, all my dreams had kind of come true at 22 or 23. I played my Jimi Hendrix style vibes with my band, Craig Payton Group. But when that record came out and was playing on every radio station, I could hear it walking down the street. I could hit different buttons in my car and that same song would be playing. Studio 54 played it round the clock. It did not translate to my instrument. Unfortunately, playing the vibraphone, the xylophone-like instrument electrically to other people just sounded like a synth player. So nobody went, wow, that guy's doing something innovative on the vibes. Instead, they were just like, yeah, that was a cool dance tune. What else do you have? So it was a spike through my heart since I'd put so many years developing that sound, but realizing that if I got too far from the native sound of the instrument, it wasn't going to make me a career that I was expecting. Meanwhile, the rest of my band, who were a lot smarter than me, all got Broadway gigs and became big heavyweights in Broadway. I drifted into the studio world because of that hit. I became a producer and started putting out a lot of R&B records, and my rest of the guys primarily went into the Broadway thing and we all remained friends but then all those years later we got back together and started jamming and realized how much fun we had as musicians
0: didn't you have something to do with that hit let the music play by Shannon
1: well Nelson Cruz was a good friend of mine and they came over to my house I had a production studio on the Upper East Side and they came over with a synthesizer and I taught them basically how to they weren't sure what scales were and stuff oh a lot of DJs were making records Um, Dance records in the early days of sequencers and my music school friends hated him because they said how how come this guy got a record deal he doesn't even play an instrument Hmm. and I would say it totally doesn't matter where you were in the basement working on your saxophone solos, they were listening to 10,000 records and they knew exactly what bar of what record made the club go crazy at 2 a.m. And that information is what makes hit records. So I would... It's about
0: the beat. You always hear this, whether you're listening to American Bandstand, you know, every week it, it was about the beat. The favorite singles were about the beat. It's still about the beat even today. In the early 80s dance music circuit, You know, I think of that Shannon song I just referred to, that had a really strong beat that's that's what that song was it was one gigantic beat
1: it was a drum machine loop using a lot of fifths a lot of parallel fifths
0: and a great single as well
1: and a great single Shannon herself was a she was a checkout girl at a grocery store up in Harlem and they or maybe it was the South Bronx, They a lot of times we'd make the whole record and they'd put the singer on in the back end of the record.
0: It's very easy for us to branch off down many different hallways because you have a whole office building of, of a career here. So let me bring it back to the Craig Payton group again. I'm curious, why 34 years before you made your second album?
1: Well, to g- keep going on what I was saying before, with my brand of fusion music, which is Primarily jazz that has rock and roll roots. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, Miles Davis were really developing that hard. Billy Cobb, Jeff Beck. But that music got discredited. Punk rock kind of took over. And even though I put an album out on Buddha Records of fusion music and it did pretty good airplay-wise, it was very obvious I wasn't going to make a living that way. So it's just... uh, pure economics. Some of the guys in the band got Broadway jobs. And once you get married and have a family, Broadway is a good steady living. The drummer I work with, Ray Marchica has done practically every show you ever heard of. John Putnam, same thing. He was a lead guitarist for the Tommy show, um, done ridiculous amount of credits to his name. And that stability, you simply can't get those guys to leave their chair to go hop in a van and go play jazz clubs.
0: It makes sense. After 34 years, too, you've developed so many other priorities. It's amazing. All the same people came back and played on the album. Will there be more albums by the Craig Payton group?
1: We had so much fun doing it. We started playing nightclubs, only to realize what we already knew, which, again, people don't line up around the block to hear instrumental fusion music. But we had so much fun in the studio. We made a couple of music videos. We did a video of the Hendrix Tune Angel, a couple other videos of of songs of ours, one called Nebadon. And we're in touch all the time and, and jam and get together. So we don't really have any sort of constructive goal other than that we're friends first music group second
0: a homecoming is an appropriate enough title for your 2016 release of the craig payton group can we hear something from that yes i would love to hear something from that
1: let's play god i gotta see the the back of the album to remember all my the tunes homecoming itself came out pretty good but there's there's a lot of good pieces on that record
0: what song you want to listen to
1: um it's a track called before the fall we'd been playing it live forever And uh, we're doing it a lot in our jam sessions, so we decided to record it for this new album.
0: Groovy, let's listen. Great work. You know, you mentioned Dan Hartman. I always thought he was very underrated. I believe he lived in Westport, yes. Connecticut. Unfortunately, he passed away from AIDS in 1994 way too soon. He was in his 40s, right? Yeah. You worked with him. You knew him. I think you guys were friends. How did you meet and how close of friends were you?
1: Well, he came up to me at a gig in Westport, a club called Players Tavern, and he, he really liked that I was innovating on fundamentally an old-fashioned instrument. He got a big kick out of that. And he came up and said, straight out of the box, he said, I'm going to put you on a hit record. And I didn't believe it. Was quite jaded at that point, traveling all the time with my band and staying in pretty lousy hotels. But he called me up a week or two later and had me come to a studio in Westport. And I cut the track, and good, good for his name, that became the Vertigo Relight My Fire hit. And we, we always got along. He got a kick out of the jazz side of the business, even though he was a rock and roller and had really learned how to monetize his musical talent. He constantly amazed me. He had a great recording studio called The Schoolhouse. And I just started showing up and doing projects there. Uh, we did Alison Moway, we did her album, we did Nona Hendrix's album together. We did James Brown's uh, Gravity album together. And he would call me up for arrangement ideas, and he got a big kick out of it when I did New Age and Latitude started charting. He couldn't. He was like, how the hell did you do that? He, he thought of me as just a studio guy, so when I actually put out a record that charted on its own, he was quite surprised, and to my undying uh, compliment, he actually put out a New Age record of his own that was kind of just sounds and textures, and I think I influenced it a little bit, and he was such a genius. Anything he put his mind to, he did great.
0: Was he a mentor to you, would you say?
1: Very much so. Because of the Edgar Winter Group experience, whenever he was dealing with Steve Paul scene or, I don't know, any of the management people, Jimmy Iovine, you know, big names in the industry. Dan knew the ropes and knew the battlefield, and I would just kind of listen and hear the war stories. He wanted to be a star in his own right.
0: A handy guy to know and to shadow, and it's amazing how many musicians need those mentors. They need people that show them the ropes and take them by the hand and say, you know what, your music's pretty good. I like what you're doing. I think you're on the right track, and kind of induct them into the business, so to speak.
1: Yeah, he would would come to my gigs in New York, and he would be pretty verbal, fire that guy, hire that guy. I think this sound is going better, and he always had great commercial ears, but he wasn't a player from the point of view of a jazz guy, so we did have differences of opinion about the genesis of why you even play music.
0: So I take it you didn't always follow his advice?
1: No, I generally kind of went pretty far from it. on the. I, I didn't set out to do the pop thing, so I admired that he could make money doing radio music, but Top 40 back then was definitely formulaic music. And, you know, the Fusion guys, I, I won't say we were the jazz police. We weren't. But we, we kind of had our pride about the this, this style we played. And it certainly wasn't Top 40.
0: Either way, a huge loss to the music world, Dan Hartman. Uh, you've worked with a lot of people. You've made a lot of albums. David Hoffman springs to mind. For those who don't know, he was an arranger for Ray Charles for some time. What kind of work did you do with him?
1: Well, he's good friends with a guy named Paul Adams. And Paul Adams is actually enjoying a really good career right now. He's a he's a great multi-instrumentalist out in Peoria. He uh, plays acoustics, electric guitars, flutes, percussion, and has done a lot of work with Dave. I had a record company called Earth Flight Productions for quite a while, and I put him on some of my records. And Paul and I have always been good friends, and he's blown up on... Um, CD, um, not CD Baby, he's blown up on Spotify and iTunes. He's up in the like 100 million play department. So he's he is now one of my mentors. I call him for business advice because uh, he's really out there. My friend... Paul keeps an eye on Dave. Dave's getting older, so they, they, I think they have a really nice symbiotic relationship.
0: You know, I mentioned many times throughout the show how many albums you have. They have really cool titles, too. I like Blue Curve is one of my favorites. Uh, that just, it just gets your attention. The love demos. Is that a bunch of love songs in demo form? I mean, what is that album all about?
1: These are great questions, Rick. It's funny. Don't that's, expect it.
0: That's my job.
1: <laughs> yeah well you're doing it good hey, they don't
0: just hand these jobs out to chimps <laughs> i'm gonna say like five more things and then we'll choose later which one to put in you know? damn straight
1: craig <laughs> <laughs> Those, it's two completely opposite directions the um blue curve is because i'm a pilot and a big part of my making a living career has been a, around aviation as a pilot and an aerial photographer I knew it
0: was some kind of aeronautic term
1: well no blue curve is simply when you're out in space looking at sunrise from not on the earth and you see that curve that beautiful edge curve that the earth itself makes from orbit from Orbit. And that's beautiful. That's what gave me the title. The love demos are completely different. I worked many years with a songwriter named Jalin Skinner, brilliantly talented writer from Guyana. And we had some pretty decent-sized hits together. Uh, Where are You Gonna Be Tonight is uh, is one of them. Um, oh, God. Who did we work with? We we worked with so many damn people. Anyway, he he got signed to Zomba and ended up doing most of the catalog for the Backstreet Boys and has had a had a monster career and some of the demos that didn't get cut uh company out in Pittsburgh named Pittsburgh Tracks have been putting out some of my records the last 5 years and they wanted to go through a lot of my demos and they picked the four that I did with Jollin and released them and that's been great because it's you know just archival stuff that never saw the light of day but we were working a lot with Keith Diamond who and did Caribbean Queen and Um, We were in the studio a lot with him, and we wrote a song for Melba Moore called Love of a Lifetime that I'm really proud of that I think is a, a good piece of work. So we have a good history, but when he got signed to Zamba, I didn't get signed, so we stopped writing together.
0: You know, sadly, we're almost out of time. I want to get at least one more song in, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if you could come back next week and join this continuing conversation because your career is just too vast to fit into one 30-minute episode. I don't know if we can do it in two, but I'm willing to try if you're willing to come back.
1: Oh, I'm happy to come back. It's the hazard of a jack-of-all-trades. There's too many subject areas.
0: There certainly is, and this has been a challenge for me to put this together and get it all in, but I'm determined to. We still have one more go-around before we conclude. I'd like to listen to one more song, actually, of yours, maybe to take the show out. What do you think?
1: I think so. Why don't we play a tune what something I'm real proud of, besides the fusion writing I've done, is uh, my work with Latitude. Latitude is um, a group that I formed as a duo with Benjamin Verdery, who's a classical guitarist. And we've wrote, written a lot of music together, and um, we've been real happy to put that back out digitally recently. So this is going to be a song called Trust.
0: I'd love to hear it. That sounded great. Where was that recorded, Greg?
1: I had a studio apartment on the Upper East Side in New York City, and after making enough dance records, I sold everything I owned and bought a big production synthesizer called a Fairlight 3. It was a massive 16-track machine back in the early 80s, very primitive. OS system that was way before Windows. And that was a bold move. It was scary. The thing broke every 15 minutes, but what it would do, you could arrange complete production into it, and it would play it back live, and it allowed me to make albums right out of my apartment. So all the Latitude records that we made, uh, we just had a four-track Atari, and we used the Fairlight synthesizer in the four-track, one track for sync, and the guitar part that you were just hearing was recorded in the bathroom. Ben Verdery sitting on the on the toilet playing the guitar, and that was uh, Studio B.
0: Uh, secrets of studio b you're getting it right here uh, first time on the rick z show uh, secrets of studio b a disgusting but fun (laughs) well they're
1: building a building next to us and it was the only way we could get isolation so not only that it was the middle of the summer with no ac and ben would come out drenched but he he's a brilliant player so he'd still play hit the parts well
0: well it's a great place to put a pin in the show we're gonna have to hold it there until next week i'm very happy to hear that you're gonna come back thank you so much for being with us today craig
1: well, it's my pleasure. It's been really fun, and I appreciate you doing some research and uh, speaking with me.
0: You've been listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, produced and engineered every week by Rusty Johnson. Come on back next week and hear part two with Craig Payton. We'll see you then. <music>